0: Okay. All right. Uh, We are back. Another episode of political theory and um, other stuff. Uh, Today, we are doing our overview on uh, capitalist realism by Mark Fisher. It's super exciting because we have a guest today, our first guest ever. And um, uh, Mr. Guest, will you introduce yourself?
1: Hi, I'm Chris. Um, Good. Just say some stuff about myself. Yeah, say some stuff okay, about you know. yourself. Uh, first, I know Mike and Paul from from high school. We hung out way back in the day. Now I live in New York. I'm a graduate student in English at the Graduate Center. And I'm trying to write my dissertation now about um, finance and contemporary culture. And um, there's a whole lot of shit I could say about that, but maybe later.
0: Excellent. Awesome, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming. We really appreciate it, Chris. Um, And you're obviously familiar uh, with the work um, that we're Mm. reviewing today. Um, Do you wanna talk about uh, maybe how you you came across it um, and maybe uh, initial impressions or something?
1: Sure, sure. Um, So I think I first read this in 2013, which, when was it published? I'm just looking up the in 2009. Okay. Um, so I read it in 2013, which was around the time that like Occupy was happening. And for me, that was the time when I started sort of getting into kind of like leftist or radical politics or whatever. Um, and a lot of that came through just like reading blogs. Um, and Mark Fisher's blog K punk was, um, one of the first ones I started reading. And the thing I remember most about it was at that time, I just like most of what I read, I had like no idea what he was talking about. So it was just like, oh, he's talking about techno, but he's also talking about like political economy and like the legal economy. And I'm just like, what the fuck is going on here? But it seems really cool. And then I found this book because like every, everybody was talking about it on like the blogosphere or whatever. And it was just like really formative. In terms of trying to think about um, ideology and just sort of like this sense that there's no um, no getting out of it, no kind of opting in or out, right? It's just this like pervasive kind of like everything is fucked. Like, what can we do about it? And I feel like the book. And it's just like so accessible, right? It's not written like an academic book or like a scholarly book necessarily, but certainly invokes all kinds of like scholarly concepts and cites things, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just like really approachable. And so I think that experience was the same for like a lot of people around that time. And because it's also like 80 pages, and I'm like, cool, I can read this in an afternoon. So for a long time, it was like super, super important for how I thought about the world. And now coming back to it, it seems really interesting how much of like a document of its time it is, that sort of like Obama era, where everything like, you know, was still obviously super fucked, um, but there was still this like really pervasive sense that like, nothing is going to change. This is just gonna keep going on and on and on. And I think especially like post 2016, some of the stuff in here like feels a lot more dated to me um and maybe we can talk about some of that stuff as we go
0: yeah absolutely absolutely so paul and i read the book together it was my second full reading of the book i realized as we were reading it how much i overlooked or didn't fully comprehend while we were while i was doing this reading with paul i found some of it or a lot of it very, um, very striking. But I also you know, have um, some questions and I don't know how much, if the amount I felt uh, about it being a product of its time was uh, relative or equal to yours. I feel like maybe it was less, but there were moments where I was like, huh, I wonder if he would have approached this topic differently if if this had been written a decade or so later. Sorry. And I, oh, sorry. And I, it
2: just comes up with like for me with the topical things that he picks, like the way he discusses the internet, the way he discusses how kids behave. Um, that and you know we had those discussions while we were reading it, where I was like, hmm, I'm not sure if that went exactly the route he thought it would, or if the base <clears> understanding of how this would grow came clear in some of those sections. As far as like, that's when it when I was like, oh man, still topical points, and like if you expound upon it, a lot of it was still pretty relevant. But, you know, that's the, I think, kind of some of the price he paid for trying to be as relevant as possible while he was writing it.
1: Yeah, and it's like, that's the danger, I guess, of like writing about culture ever (laughs) is like cultures kind of always changing so (laughs) rapidly. Like, that's one of the things I think is really great about this book is the way that he uses popular culture as a way of analyzing these sort of more abstracts. more kind of like diffuse, complicated things. Yeah, it'd, it'd be interesting. Cause it, he, and I think that's like what's most valuable here and what he was like best at is that sort of cultural analysis. And it's just like such a bummer that he died, you know? Cause yeah, it would be so useful to hear what, how he is working with like all the weird cultural shit that we're dealing with today, you know?
0: Yeah. And Paul and I talked about that. Um, like, um, with a lot of the movies, especially when he was talking about like Born and Memento, and mm-hmm. there was another one, like, he, how he was able to tie in the idea of like whatever cultural amnesia to those, those movies. I just, and I, I didn't save the, the, um, excerpts but i remember while we were reading it just being like damn dude i've seen those movies multiple times and i never would have been able to make that connection to like the greater cultural movements and i think that's you were saying incredibly valuable
1: yeah 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 for sure
0: so one thing that i've been wondering about is he talks early on about how it during the capitalist realist like epoch or whatever we're not Able to like come up with new things and like everything is just like uh, recycled and, and reformatted. Paul and I have talked about that kind of being a little bit skeptical of that. The thing that came to my or recently, I saw um, this show called Midnight Gospel, and I was thinking as I was watching it, like I wish that he, I wish I could hear what Fisher would say about this because to me, this seems like a new show or. Am I missing what he means by recycled? Am I taking it too literally? do you have um, any input on that
1: well i've I've watched um a couple episodes of the show, okay, and it seems interesting to me because as far as I understand it's it's like a podcast with yeah. some like animations and stuff, yep, right right so it seems like there's already something like a little bit kind of recycled about that like i don't. Think recycled is even it's like necessarily bad. Majority here, right? right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, like Fisher himself was super into like DJ music, right? Which is like constantly recycling things. I think the sense that there's nothing new is maybe more of kind of like a like a political statement than like a formal one. Like there okay, could be thanks. something formally innovative about. Um, What is it? Midnight
2: gospel. Midnight gospel.
1: Yeah. But that it's still sort of like routed through all these kind of like modes of consumption and all that that like everything else is right. Like it's at the end of the day, it's still just like a fucking Netflix show. Right. Um, And the idea that any of these Netflix shows are going to like bring about some sort of new consciousness or something. Maybe that's the thing that he's kind of trying to question. Okay.
0: All right okay um that that makes sense uh, my kind of
2: interpretation of the whole thing is that one this comes to me a little bit about kind of some of that outdated stuff which is that i'm not sure while this book was written that he could have fully predicted uh and i'm not saying it's going to be a long-term version of this but the extremity of the decentralization of media or, Mm or entertainment like youtube podcasts to me Maybe it's not new, but it is really different because these all got to come out uh, without any corporate oversight. There wasn't a larger mm. entity dictating what's like with us. We're a podcast. Sure. Maybe we don't have yeah. a lot of listeners. But there is nobody guiding what we can and can't say on our production of media. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of that happened through YouTube and podcasts in general. Um, now, in defense of his old concept, it does seem like that's getting backtracked on. Like YouTube is globulating or whatever word it's it's coming back into that okay there's a few main channels they are very dictated in what they say you know a lot of their content is based on keeping sponsors happy uh, and the same is happening to the podcasting world but that isn't to say that you know same with twitch twitch is getting a little bit more corporatized and things of that nature um but that concept that there can be a deregulation of media i think is slightly new uh, at least in my lifetime or how i interpret it And that's what I like about Midnight Gospel is that like clearly it was allowed to be made without having some like giant audience pre-built. Like I'm not sure, uh, you know, who they would have sold as far as ad dollars would have gone if it had gone to like CBS or whatever. Yeah, like it, it, for me, just the idea that a show like that could exist without having like an endless marketing scheme to it or the fact that it doesn't need to pump out new episodes, that kind of concept is a little, I think, new as far as media went from the time even when this book was written. Really yeah,
1: happening. that makes sense. I think he would say that like newness is like constantly being generated, right? That's like people are always trying to like do cool new shit. But it's that kind of, there's, I'm sure there's like a technical term he uses, but I can't remember what, but the way it's sort of like subsumed under this whole like apparatus that it seems like now is is happening with like, Like, didn't Joe Rogan get like $100 million or something from Spotify? And like Joe Rogan is kind of like the emblem of that like, Nobody can tell me what to think. Like, I'm just asking questions, blah, blah, blah. I'm um, sort of like free free. You can even whatever. tell me
2: to think. No, I'm
1: right, just, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and again, like, that's all, always happening. And it does, like, are One, potentially, like, cool source of that. But it's part of a process. And it seems like that process towards concentration, centralization, right, in the sort of, like, market Stalinist sense that yeah. he talks about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where it's
0: it's it's all capital all the time, right? Right. Oh, yeah. And and it's super
2: also, real. Yeah. It, oh, sorry. If we uh, ever I, wanted to extend our reach, we would need capital. There's right. No right. About it. Like, yeah. Regardless yeah. of.
0: <laughs> right. And the the other thing I think of in, in ta- when he's talking about like capital being like John Carpenter film the thing, and how it just like um you have this uh, explosion of of something slightly different or whatever with with like the internet or or then like. YouTube Mm -hmm. or podcast or Twitch, and then over time, uh, the thing is able to incorporate it back in. And that's something that that Capital is maybe one of the things it's best at, is um, kind of consuming and incorporating things that were once either in opposition to it or independent or seemed independent of it you know yeah. and and we obviously see that also with uh the uh, bonos like project red or whatever it was called you know that sort of thing in general yeah that's fascinating to me
1: and it, like when he, when he talks about nirvana and kurt cobain mm. it's a, like Cobain sort of confronted this problem like head on like I want to make sort of this anti-establishment music but like I'm the establishment now so yep. all I can do is sort of like say fuck you to myself And like that's the only option left you know
2: yeah. yeah yeah and just one thing I thought about while reading that is like how many people that ends up not bothering obviously that had a lasting lasting effect on Kurt Cobain but there are so many people who start anti-establishment and you know the second you get money you're out of it and I'm going on a huge tangent you can edit this out uh, but I always think about that Black Mirror episode uh, where they all like ride bikes to like power their society do you guys know what I'm talking about at all
0: no no i haven't, I haven't okay so it ends like there it focuses
2: on um a guy who's very upset with the way that the whole thing works uh a tragedy kind of befalls him because of the system uh and the whole thing is kind of like based around like in a, to get out of riding the bike you have to win this like american talent or the american idols kind of show okay uh and so he works his way onto the show Uh, And instead of doing an act, he like grabs the microphone and like just fucking rails on how shitty the society is and how shitty everybody is, just watching people's grief and stuff. And he ends up winning and is given a show where he can now go on and just say those things afterwards. Uh, And the end of it is he no longer cares how shitty the society is. He has a beautiful house, uh, servants, all the food and shit he could eat. And once a week he gets on and like for 30 minutes pretends to be angry still. And that is like such a good representation of what Mark Fisher is talking about, or, or yeah. what happened, you know, in that situation.
0: Totally. Have you guys seen Network? No, uh, I haven't, but it's on my not. list. I've okay. wanted to yeah, see great. it.
1: But it, it's, I mean, it's different than that. And but it's still about the sort of like commodification of this like outrage because there's the famous scene where he's like, "I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore." We right. start of saying that on the news, and all the execs are like, "What the fuck? We can't have this on the news." And then this woman is like, no, wait, this is exactly what we need on the news. And it becomes this whole production where he ends up killing himself on air, but at, like, more viewers than ever before, you know? So it all, right. again, just gets, like, sucked back into... Funneled
2: money back into the system he was mad yeah. at. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's
1: the, that concept of, like, what if you had a protest and everybody showed up, right? It's yeah. like good call. If, if everybody's call. into it, then... <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: not...
0: Yeah, that kind of ties in. I did a few. I think it's six. I have six quotes um, that resonated for me, and uh, this ties into one of them. So I just want to, like, bottom page twelve and and kind of the bottom of page thirteen. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm actually gonna like read them opposite than how it's written. He says, um, uh, "This is uh, him talking." talking about some Zizek shit. And he says, uh, so long as we believe in our hearts that capitalism is bad, we are free to continue to participate in capitalist exchange. And uh, then on page 12, he's talking about Wally and he says, uh, the film performs our our anti-capitalism for us, allowing us to continue to consume with impunity. That just like really strikes a chord. I mean, I, I just felt, I've experienced that so many times where I'm able to justify my consumption or my participation through or the product does something for me to alleviate my anxiety about participating in capital. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just thought that was that was um that yeah. is is striking to me.
1: I'm just trying to think about like the phrasing of like consuming this cultural product or whatever. And that being like alleviating your anxiety. And I just like, do you think that, so if you watch, uh, you know, quote unquote, like anti-capitalist film or show or whatever, like, is that the primary effect of like alleviation?
0: Um, no, but I was thinking, and maybe this doesn't even like necessarily tie in, but like the whole, uh, like um, we were talking about um, like Tom's, the shoes, fucking mm-hmm. um, uh, right. a while back when Paul and I were recording. Like I remember times where it's like, I don't necessarily need an ex- extra pair of shoes right now, but it would be nice to have like a lighter pair of shoes for summer. These people are giving shoes away, so I'm like helping out by getting these shoes. So I'm gonna get not one pair of shoes, I'm getting two different pairs of shoes, two different colors. That was what I was kind of alluding to. Not that when I watch, you know, something about the problems of capital or read something about it, it's like, oh, okay, now I feel better because I've done this. I mean, I do, but that has more to do about like feeling a little bit more informed than it does feeling like I'm fixing something by purchasing something. That's what it comes down to is like yeah. feeling like I have made the problem a little less bad by purchasing something which I feel like it's pretty clear that that's not the case in fact uh, I would say that it's not the case but for whatever reason the marketing the PR has at times in my life been able to to trick me into thinking that I'm doing something good by purchasing stuff does that make sense yeah yeah
1: but I that's I just wonder about like alleviation as kind of like a lessening or of some like negative state versus the sort of more positive effects um, of like feeling more informed or feeling like angry or that you understand something better about like how the world is fucked up, which the, those seem like sort of different operations. And again, like, yeah, I don't know yeah. that anybody like watches wall and like gets angry. Right. And I think right. that's like why he the uses it. Right. right. Yeah. Left. You watch wall and you're like, Oh, great. You know, mm-hmm. like, cool yeah um so that does seem to be like some kind of alleviation when you're like i recognize that this is our world covered in trash and shit and like it's fucked but like i feel better about it you know yeah we um, can
2: still have a love story in that world though. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah is what yeah. <laughs> yeah. On. yeah and
1: all, all the fucking fat people can like get out of their chairs and like start <laughs> doing shit again and return to earth and plant seeds or whatever
0: right yeah
2: yeah um, totally it's for me with wally gets at um, and it's kind of mentioned here is that like the concept that one of the concepts that blew my mind is that it seems or it's hinted that media has just turned to the well we're not going to get out of this like we're fucked anyway so we need to start making shows not about how we save this but about how people live past the apocalypse and that kind of depresses me and I I see it once I read that in this book I started thinking about all the things that fall into that category especially You know, I don't want to just pin it straight to the zombie thing because I'm not super educated about this topic, but that seemed to be a starting point where now so many movies and so many TV shows are set in a post-apocalyptic warning literally every time about like how our lives are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously with the suggestion that we can't fix this, we just have to hope that once we blow this all up, there'll be some people hanging out afterwards that learn from our mistakes or whatever.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, for sure. And I think Fisher was like... I mean, that was happening before this, before he was writing this, and certainly, like, um, for the rest of his life. But, yeah, and it's that that kind of, like, so instead of sort of this, like, shiny, like, Jetson's utopia of the 90s, you get these sort of, like, dark, grimy, like, survivalist fantasies, right? Um, And, yeah, definitely. And all of those, I feel like, are, are, like, always about this kind of, like, individualist, like, I need to be prepared, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, which again is like just fucking pure ideology. Yeah. Um, and there's, but there is something like so attractive about that. And that's like why it works ideologically.
2: Oh, yeah. um,
1: you know, like I'm going to be the fucking like the clever one who outsmarts the zombies, you know? Yes.
2: Yep. Yeah. And all these things that were holding me back are no longer holding me back. I can reach my right. true potential of manhood.
1: Right, uh, yeah, yeah, the, that kind of freedom that comes yeah. like, after every all the fucking sheep are dead, you know? <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. And I've had this talk with a lot of people who are super into, like, surviving it, and I'm like, well, I'm glad you guys are into this, because I sure as fuck just hope I don't make it to the other side. Like, I don't <laughs> want my wife to instantly turn into me, like... Battling renegades in my fucking woods while scavenging fucking rabbit parts and shit like Jesus, yeah, uh, that's not my personal utopia <laughs> like, Another
1: another like instance of that that I've been really interested in lately is like in sci-fi where it's a for You know the sort of general thrust of sci-fi is like you go out and explore the stars yeah. colonize planets and all this shit, but now I feel like more and more these films, books, whatever, are about like going out into space and be like, oh shit, it sucks out here. Like we gotta go back. Oh shit, the earth sucks too. Like what are we supposed to do? Um, So instead of this sort of just like, you know, colonizing um, imperative or whatever, and this obviously has a lot to do with climate change, but the idea that like we're stuck here and like the situation is deteriorating rapidly and like we have to do something about it. Well, what you know and that's right. yeah
0: yeah so when you were talking about like with the um the sci-fi and being like well what are we going to do um that reminded me of um the quote on um, like top of page 35 yeah okay it says um there is no longer any identifiable external enemy the consequence is mirazi i think how'd you say that dude's name do you know?
1: Mar- Marazzi? He's a, ta- a Christian. Oh, he? Marazzi? Okay. I think Marazzi? Where, okay. Yeah.
0: Marazzi argues that post Fortis workers are like the Old Testament Jews after they left the house of slavery, liberated from a bondage to which they have no wish to return, but also abandoned, stranded in the desert, confused about the way forward. When Paul and I were reading this, I got like choked up reading that because I just because I do often just feel so helpless as far as what needs to happen on a, a big scale. And um, and and you talking about sci-fi and how it's so, now there's this trend of like not knowing, finding that the stars are, are not where they want to be, but also returning isn't an option or, or isn't a good one just reminded me of that. So that's why I wanted to bring that up too.
2: Yeah, it's it's just the sense of the whole book. And I guess that's, where i still feel uncomfortable with so many things is that like and that's what mark fisher is pointing out i think with the term capitalist realism and the whole thing is like the whole world has just decided that there isn't another option that like this is the end all be all of how we can function and that there's not going to be a next step and i guess what always gets me down is that in a lot of conversations i myself personally can identify problems, but sure can't lay like a beautiful path forward of what needs to happen. Like, I understand in my head that I would way rather live in a world uh, where your merit isn't a capital-based system, where everything about you isn't based off of your bank account or uh, your assets, then I can very much feel that people would be happier, And but I don't know how to... It, you know, express like a turnkey operation about how we switch away from that. Like, how do we revalue everything? How do we rearrange everything? And in my head, I can tell myself, well, I just think stronger bureaucratic processes with people more vetted into those processes could help, but that's, you know, like a kind of like a pipe dream. and doesn't really explain stuff. And so that is where, like you were saying, I just feel lost because like, I, I see that there's a problem, but I don't know how to get us out of the desert. Earlier
1: today, I was just, like, reading some stuff um, about Fisher and about the book, um, and there was an article in Jacobin saying, like, if only um, Fisher had lived to see, like, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, like, he would have been super pumped and, like, oh, this, you know, this is the way out. And it was written in 2019, so... it. <laughs> Kind of like, oh, and then he like would have lived to see both of those dudes just like swept away with yeah. like a casual wave of the hands, you know? Uh, so, but even in his own writings, like like on his blog and in, in some other things, it seems like there is a kind of faith in that sort of like um, political process, right? Like um, with sort of mass mobilizations, like a proper movement, we can get good people in leadership positions who can help like lead us out of this mess. And that's a, like, that I am deeply skeptical of. Um, well, I mean, I like understand it completely and it seems like a very sort of plausible answer to that, like, what is to be done question. Um, like, you know, work to get good people into positions of power. I would also just kind of like, following up on the Jacobin article, like, I would also be very interested, not only what Fisher would have said about the sort of Corbyn and Sanders phenomenon, which seemed on the verge of, like, yeah, real power, but also the aftermath, in which it became so fucking clear that, like, that power was just, like, pure illusion, you know, like, yep. like an Obama and the DNC just one day were like, uh, like, enough of this shit, you know, like, yeah. get out of here. And it fucking happens, despite like the greatest, most fucking like efficiently organized, like enthusiastic campaign organization like ever, you know? So. (laughs) And it's
2: just like, the hard part about that is, (laughs) there is like a part of me that is like, don't you guys just see the monolith that Trump supporters are? Like, can't we emulate that? But then the large part of me is like, but that's not a movement I want to be a part of either. You know, like I don't want to sell people that they can't have dissenting opinions, but how do you battle against something where that is how they behave? You know, like every day, and I, I don't mean to be so topical, but I just get, like I live uh, in the southeastern United States and the amount of anger towards just trying to uphold public safety protocols is insane like and there's no logic to be talked you can't bring up numbers because if you talk about people dead any comparison is just not a relevant comparison and you're talking about a virus that kills point oh oh (laughs) oh 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 two percent of the population and the only reason that i can't back that up is because every number published is fake uh, and while I know that's fake, and you do also know that fake, but pretend to acknowledge it. Uh, and it's just, it's such a, I don't know how you combat that, like, right. that team, team spirit sort of shit. I really, Mike, Mike and
1: I have talked a lot about this kind of shit, uh, sort of the alt-right, and this, you know, which I think to most people, generally have, like, fucking insane beliefs and convictions. Um, and I feel like I have actually been, like, more dismissive of it than I should have been. Whereas, oh, like, okay. Mike has always been like, no, dude, you need to fucking take these dudes seriously. And again, like, especially during this, during the coronavirus stuff. And I have, maybe it's just, like, confirmation bias or whatever. But it's just, like, and I, I know it's that. Because it's all, the vast majority of people are like, yeah, wear masks. Like, social distance Yeah, that's very true. Not, you don't want people to die but you do get like caught up in the narrative that there's this like vast swath of people who are like freedom, which means, you know, getting your haircut or not suffering the injury to manhoods that like wearing a mask would entail. Right. You know? right. um, yeah. Which again, it's just like pure fucking insanity. But there is something at like the heart of that, that it seems like we have to, to reckon with, you know, like what is, um, so attractive about this to so many people.
2: Yeah. I think it's guns. And,
1: um, <laughs> well, well, like I'm yeah. not kidding. Just a bunch of people like wanna fuck their guns, you
2: know? Yeah, I, well, no, I, I also like, that a concept I think about all the time is it's just like, damn, dude, these are all people who should have been playing D&D. But instead yeah. of being into like fantasy worlds, they construct this fantasy about the reality they live in. And so they buy all of these guns and all of these things for this looming conflict Uh, where they can't even identify the enemy. Like, the enemy is the deep state cabal um, that everybody who is wearing a mask is a part of. Like, the North Carolina, the lady in charge of all the stay-at-home protests, dude, her husband is constantly... Publishing shit about, like, well, we're not saying that the guns are there to kill you, but if you bring guns, you better be careful. Just shit like that. It's like, hold on, what are you talking about? Nobody is shooting each other in the streets right now. Like, this is a fantasy in your head. Well, I mean, people are being shot in the streets. Yes, but they're not them.
1: Being shot yes. by cops, which uh, <laughs> yeah. these people don't give a shit about, you know? Because right. it doesn't, right. yeah, conform to that kind of like survivalist fantasy. Because. Yep. The fucking, the black people are the ones that they're going to have to, like, defend their family against or whatever, right? Right.
0: Yeah. And I will say, you know, I just finished for my first time a, a couple weeks ago reading a Chomsky book, uh, Manufacturing Consent. You know, what, know really? It's yeah. so it's so good and, and yet so frustrating um, mm-hmm. because it's, for me, Paul and I have talked about this, and this happens a lot with when, when you 're tackling that sort of topic where to me, because of the literature i 've been exposed to it 's pretty obvious that um, that the media and journalists unconsciously would conform to the corporate and government narrative you know but um, to to attempt to convince someone else of that, you need to bring a lot of of facts and uh, you need to bring a lot of um, of examples of this happening so the book has to beat in my opinion a dead horse on the topic if that makes sense like the amount of and it's really cool for someone that's like not that's skeptical on the topic but for me it was like dude you know this is like the 12th example and i appreciate the work that you've done to make these examples but anyhow uh, the striking thing about the protests and how um and how it feels like there's like so many people that believe this is uh, I saw somewhere that um, the amount of like uh, strikes doubles or triples the amount of these like conservative protests, but the media covers the protests. I can't remember, but a magnitude more. And that's like such a good example of the, the manufacturing consent. It makes it seem like everyone wants to get back to business that everyone values the economy uh, and capital more than they value hum- human life. When in reality, um, like we were saying, it's a, it's a small minority, you know, e- even right. out of, I assume, and I haven't looked at the numbers, but even out of conservatives, I would assume it's only a, a subset of conservatives that are out there protesting the, the, uh, the stay at home orders.
2: Yeah. It sucks, yeah. They s- so strategically live in a way that allows them to swing presidential elections. I know.
1: (laughs) Like even, I don't think that like, they're particularly strategic in a way that like, you know, leftists aren't or something. It's just their actions like provoke outrage in a way that like fuels the media cycle. Whereas like a bunch of people, you know, like picketing a factory, a school, a store, whatever, like, isn't that exciting? Right. There's a bunch no. of fucking people with, like, bazookas. Like, <laughs> yeah. American flag tank tops. That's some shit that you want to watch. You know, oh, I want to yeah. see these fucking freaks, you know? And again, that seems like the whole kind of, like, that's Trump, right? Like, it's just, like, perfect fucking fodder for this, like, constant stream of, of outrage and exposure and all this shit. And again, like, how, how are we, <laughs> like, the lefts? gonna do that kind of shit again that doesn't mean i don't even know that that's like a productive question it's just right
2: like, yeah we it's
1: shit. true and like a constant media cycle
2: and there's that you know they're like i said a small group with unwavering ability or with unwavering opinions can be really effective because that is one of i mean i think that's why a lot of us here have shifted left is that it is more of an open dialogue you know, like I'm not going to support Obama just because he was theoretically closer to my ideological framework than somebody else if he's still extremely outside of my ideological framework. Um, That's why Al Franken doesn't have a job anymore. And, you know, Trump is still president is because uh, the left in general, and I'm doing a huge broad American left, um, not even like, you know, leftist ideals, um, but just, you know, the American DNC while surely not holding everybody accountable will allow itself to be fractured for ideological frameworks. Uh, and the other side just doesn't even have a framework. They will jump to whatever they need to, to be, or feel like they are uh, correct, uh, or at least together with each other.
1: The DNC, I, I like wouldn't conflate the DNC right,
2: with left. Uh, I'm yeah. just talking like American left. Cause we don't have any right. like actual leftist politicians. I mean, maybe, right. Or, maybe or, else.
0: or really even a, um, a party for party. for them to even exist in, you know.
1: To me, that's always seemed like the kind of like openness of that movement, right? Where it can, like, you can be this like, you know, financial Jew as like super elite <laughs> or whatever, and you can also like be a fucking Nazi who like wants to exterminate all. That there's a kind of ideology there that's just like, just pure trolling, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's like the kind of driving motive is this dissatisfaction with the way things are and the kind of desire to like, you know, go against whatever that thing is. Um, So sometimes it will be like anti-Semitism. That'll like rile people up. And again, none of this is to say that like there aren't like genuine fucking like, you know, Nazi true believers. Like that's obviously very much the case. But just in order to account for like it's, influence as a movement or something it seems more likely that people are just like whatever i can do you know to like distinguish myself from you know the sheep or whatever yep. so yep. i'm gonna be anti-semitic i'm gonna yep. be whatever the fucking topic you know right now it's like bill gates right uh,
0: yeah It a lot of it
1: free thinker like yep. you show that you're anti bill gates and like bill gates fucking sucks but right. None of these people like have any fucking idea why. They're just like... Right.
2: They're yeah. mad about microchips and vaccines.
0: Right? yeah, and Not yeah. about... Uh, Billionaires you know. and philanthropy and whatnot. Right. Um, exactly. But I'm going to shoehorn in another Yes, quote. please. <laughs> because on page 60, uh, he references uh, Wendy Brown and this uh, Wendy Brown essay called uh, American Nightmare, mm-hmm. Neoconservatism, Neoliberalism, and the De-Democratization. I, I feel like that kind of ties into what we're talking about, about how can all of these different or seemingly different ideologies on the right coalesce um, and, and work together. Paul, would you mind just uh, reading from uh, where it says Brown unpicked uh, down to the end of her quote? on the next page 61 yeah thank you
2: brown unpicked the alliance between neoconservatism and neoliberalism which constituted the american version of capitalist realism up until 2008 brown shows that neoliberalism and neoconservatism operated from premises which are not only inconsistent but directly contradictory how brown asks beginning the quote Does a rationality that is expressly amoral, at the level of both ends and means, parentheses neoliberalism, intersect with one that is expressly moral and regulatory, neoconservatism, how does a project that empties the world of meaning, that cheapens and deracinates life, and openly exploits desire, intersect one centered on fixing and enforcing meanings, conserving certain ways of life, and repressing and regulating desire? How does support for governance modeled on the firm and and a normative social fabric of self-interest marry or jostle against support for governance modeled on church authority and a normative social fabric of self-sacrifice and long-term filial loyalty, the very fabric shredded by unbridled capitalism?
0: I like the quote because it is just so crazy how these things are so seemingly opposed and yet able to, to find ways to align. Um, yeah, no, you're
1: right. It's like, this is such a-
0: One
2: thing I've never thought of is, I wonder how much the alt-right is a consequence of these two things. Um, because post Reagan, neoliberals and Republicans didn't have a lot of differences. And so I wonder if that right felt the need to distinguish it by going that hectic. Um, to establish like a difference, even though essentially the legislative purposes are the same.
0: Um, well, I mean, I know that for a, a lot of the uh, like um, alt-right kind of figureheads, people like uh, Richard Spencer and Mike Enoch, I can't remember the other, the other hosts of uh, the Daily Shoah, but um, those dudes uh, often talk about how like th- they are in a lot of ways anti-capitalist too. Because they see how neoliberalism has failed people, but for them, white people. So there's, and so there's like a distrust for uh, neoliberalism and uh, globalism, you know. And that kind of, uh, I sent to something else. I wanted to say. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm no, shoving please. everything in here. So on um, 70, where is it? Okay, yeah, on uh, 79, end of the book, or close to the end of the book. Uh, the bottom of the last paragraph, he says, uh, or the first paragraph, he says, Um, anti capitalism must oppose capital's globalism with its own authentic universality. That made me, when I was reading that, that made me think of, um, first of all, how there are a lot of people on the right now that are somewhat anti capitalist and are, um, isolationists. When it comes to trade, because of their distrust of neoliberalism, but how we all, I also see that to a certain extent on uh, the left when it comes to um, certain sock dem candidates. Like I feel like Bernie talked a little bit about isolationism, about like bringing back factory jobs to the US and, and maintaining those things. And I think that although I can see the um, allure of that rhetoric, at least. Uh, for the short term as far as like um, procuring votes, I do feel like that is counterproductive for the leftist project long term because if you are focusing on, when you talk about economic isolationism, it's really easy then for a, in my opinion, when I look at history for uh, there to be a growth of then nationalism and xenophobia to come from that how do you feel about that is that a fair a fair assessment of um economic isolationism yeah
1: um yeah i mean that to me seems like a deeply pernicious um segments of the left and i think like, you're right, a lot of it, I mean, and it's it's not even, like, hidden or unconscious necessarily. There's the same kind of, like, xenophobia and, like, fear of that sort of other, you know, brown mass of people there that is, like, on the alt-right, um, but they justify it through, like, labor theory of value or whatever. And, you know, without, like, getting into the weeds of that or the theory or anything, um, I think is, A, like, based on a real like misunderstanding of like how labor markets work but it's also like okay so what we want to protect is the value of American labor and one way we do that is by like keeping out all the you know poor masses who will reduce that value like is that a fucking like world that we want to live in you know Um, even if those ends like sure like pay workers more of course we all want that right but like, what are the means by which like we arrive at that thing? And if those means are something like a sort of isolationism, xenophobia, exclusion of immigrants or whatever, it might be worth asking, like, well, is getting workers paid more the thing we actually want here? And yeah, there's, you know, a sort of whole other conversation we we could have about um, like labor theory of value and that idea that The goal here is to have workers get the value of their labor in some way, right? Like it seems like a thing a lot of people are really into. Versus the idea that value itself is sort of like constituted by the specific form of labor that exists under capitalism, and that it's like that that we want to do away with. Which again, like how do we get
2: there? For sure. Right, to play like a little devil's advocate, I could say that from some positions I could almost understand a slight economic isolation like you said in the goal of ending more exploitation as long as it's not coupled with any sort of cultural isolation like if you were able to say like hey as american companies if you're going to germany kind of has a somewhat similar model if you're going to use foreign labor you have to pay american wages over there or we're going to stop relying on chinese labor but we're going to open up our borders um so that anybody who can qualify for these jobs can do them obviously those are real world scenarios that could never actually work you know i feel like if we were like hey american companies you have to pay chinese employees what you pay americans uh that the end result would be the american wage going down i feel you know like if you opened up jobs to a more immigrants then the backlash of the xenophobic like they took our jobs would be monumental so I think I can understand a rationale behind it, like, hey, our goal is to stop exploiting Chinese immigrants, um, but I don't know how to couple that reality uh, or that idea with the actual reality of how the world would respond to such a move. Um, and I think that, like you said, that's where their big problem is, is like, I can see where your ideas are, but it seems like you didn't think that through past why these would be good uh, has yeah. to opposed
0: and
1: even like let's say we do like you know Bernie in this alternate universe becomes president, passes some legislation that says like you know we're pro immigration, but you have to pay wages fair wages to all the immigrants um you're still like relying on a kind of f- legal framework yeah. that you assume is going to like actually work, right, right. Uh, but it doesn't ever you know, and that's like all of the immigrant labor that's like still very much flooding into this country, despite Trump being, you know, the most like anti-immigrant president ever or whatever. Like all of that shit is off the books. Like like the, it has nothing to do with like the minimum wage or whatever. And that's been the case forever. Like capital has always relied on the one hand on this sort of like freely exchanged labor power that like workers enter into contracts with their employers blah 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 but also on this like vast vast unpaid you know labor force um yeah that you don't have to pay attention to because it's illegal it's unnoticed it's it's unseen whatever sure raise
2: the minimum wage right um but that doesn't solve that problem no and i honestly this is Sorry, I don't have any uh, facts to back this per se. So uh, if I'm being real stupid, just cut me now. Um, I honestly tend to think that that is why the right pushes immigration laws. or One of the reasons the right pushes immigration laws so much is tons of large corporations illegally use immigrant labor. And part of the way they're able to keep that secret is how afraid the immigrants are. Like the immigrant knows that there's no way he can ever admit that he's an immigrant or talk about his story because their fucking family will end up in cages. Um, So I often see that as more of a way to oppress, like the stronger the immigration law is, the more they're oppressed in their lives as American citizens, the more they have to be afraid, the more they can be exploited because they know they're in a position where at any second, everything can be instantly taken away from them. My, Mother was a, a social worker and for a very wealthy county, and one of the things that happened in her term there was finding out that a lot of houses there were uh, no exaggeration, had brought in immigrant help, not let them renew any of their visas, and were basically keeping them in their houses as like indentured servants, not allowing what? them to like go. This is a, a town that is very, very synonymous with being extremely, extremely wealthy. And that it was uh not like a one or two off case. They it ended up being like a very large scale FBI, CBI kind of investigation. And, Holy shit, uh, dude! Yeah, yeah. And I I only think that's possible in a place where immigration laws are fucking draconian because they yeah. can't. There's no place for them to go to for help.
1: Yeah, Adam. My university, maybe like a year ago or something, uh, there was a conference and this dude was like organizing agricultural workers in Florida. I think orange pickers or something um, was telling us all about the just you know, and like everybody knows this, but just the insane like fucking abuses that these people have to go to exactly because they have like no legal recourse, no sort of sense of like rights or whatever. That's just like horrific, horrific story. Just like rape and abuse and you know, nothing they can do about it. Because it's still like the fucking two dollars a day that they're getting to like you know, pick tomatoes for whatever giant agriculture. It's like still more money than they would get working in their home country. So yeah, I don't know. I guess all of this is just sort of testament to Maybe what was one of your original points, Mike, about the need for a kind of universality or perhaps like an, you know, international approach to this, which again, it seems like the sort of isolationist protectionist people, I mean, they like gesture at, but it's basically like, do do a revolution in your own country, please. Like, we're trying to do one in ours, which seems like a really,
0: really bad approach to this, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah totally totally this is my last quote and uh i'd like to touch base on it and then we can we can wrap things up this is important to me okay so one of the left's vices is its endless rehearsal of historic oh sorry this is 78 bottom of 78 and i said it says uh one of the left's vices is its endless rehearsal of historical debates its tendency to keep going keep going over Kronstadt or the new economic policy rather than planning and organizing for a future that it really believes in. The failure of previous forms of anti-capitalist political organization should not be a cause for despair, but what needs to be left behind is a certain romantic attachment to the politics of failure, to the comfortable position of a defeated marginality. I see this especially because I don't spend a lot of time in leftist circles in the real world the spaces I'm predominantly in uh, are are internet based and I see this I I think it's very pernicious online this uh you know like I was talking to Paul and I think I've talked to Chris about this as well you know there I used to listen to this podcast that they would literally like use the uh, the bleep that they use on like on TV shows to censor um, profanity but they would do it for like Trotsky or like Trotskyites right so they would just people would be talking and Trotsky's name would come up and it would just be like beep because these people are like you know whatever um, like Stalinists or whatever to me that feels so much A more like performative and B more they are, it feels more like they are wedded to almost like a, something that, that feels more akin to like a subculture. You know, we are metalheads and we hate punk rock rather than something more um, uh, serious as far as like, we're trying to build a a political movement. I know that's, that's probably as far as uh, the radical left goes, probably a small subset of the, the community, but especially like on Twitter and, you know, discord and Reddit, I just see it all kinds of uh, sectarian infighting and, and debates about shit that happened like 70, 80 years ago. Um, and although history is important and we do need to, um, to be involved in historical knowledge and whatnot, I think that there is also, we need to reject the temptation to engage in um, sparring over um, past sectarian happenings.
1: Yeah. I wonder though about, how did you put it? This uh, like we're Stalinists and we hate Trotsky, and that right. be sort of like identity Yoda or like a group you join. Um, yep. And I just wonder to what extent is it possible for there to be something like a left movement that isn't like that kind of identity? You know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, it's like wading into the fucking identity waters. You know, very perilous but it's uh, like there's these things are inevitable right and i mean i guess not to the sort of extreme extent that like i'm going to bleep out trotsky because whatever like there are very good reasons for that i'm sure
0: <laughs>
1: but that no matter what right it's like you are going to kind of like align yourself like i'm with these people like i'm with these and i don't know that it like is that a problem
0: that needs to be like overcome or well i think that there's I mean, I, I don't know, but instinctually, uh, or on a, a gut level, it feels like there doesn't have to be uh, unity, uh, meaning we don't have to agree on everything, but there should be um, solidarity in the sense that I understand that when push comes to shove, uh, Trotskyite is my comrade. Right. And, and we, need to, we need to work together. I, I still have problems with him, and I'm not saying me personally, but... Anyone that hates Trotskyites uh, or dislikes them, I still have a problem with them ideolo- uh, ideologically, but but um, they are my comrade. I, I feel like that is um, is useful. I think that is uh, something that we should. Move towards because our numbers are weak as it is, and uh, that level of infighting. I mean, it is important to when you uh, have an ideological difference with a group or, or whatever to to voice that, but also to, in my opinion, to be there to not prioritize infighting over uh, the leftist uh, goal. You get what right. I'm saying? Like I do yeah. feel like, like you were saying, uh, some people feel uh, or some groups I feel like are so much more comfortable just being. A marg- just marginalized and accustomed to failure rather than, uh, than trying to, to move forward. Like maybe yeah. save the
2: infighting until you actually have something to actually fight about. Like right. we're so right. on the fringes right now uh, and we're fighting about realities that are so far away from happening that maybe right. we could focus on getting an actual cohesive reality. Um, yeah,
1: together one, one, right thing, one thing I've noticed
2: on Twitter, so like
1: who cares, but... It's fun to talk about. Like, all of the, like, hardcore tanky, like, pro-Assad people have become, like, (laughs) hardcore coronavirus conspiracy theorists.
0: Mm -hmm. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: which is so, so funny. So now they're, like... They're like citing all these like fucking insane like alt right dudes like talking about Bill Gates when like three months ago they were talking about like the fucking glorious like People's Army of Assad needs to like wipe out the fucking white helmets or whatever. Which, again, all of it like, but it just like it's this kind of contrarian everything that seems like, and you know, the people who like bleep out Trotsky like, yeah. to me, just seems like a kind of contrarian you know like okay well whatever the fucking the masses right and the masses i guess confined in the sense to like whatever minuscule portion of the country is like the left like we're fucking against that you know yeah it seems like that's the kind of like affective investment there it's just like i'm way over here you guys are all over here i'm like fucking way over here
2: you know And that's like an issue with fringe or radical things in general is that you're going to have some people who really believe in it and have reasons for why they're there. But it's also an attractive thing, like you were saying, just to the trolling community, because it is a concept that pushes the regular masses away and anything, you know, so it attracts people that just want to rile feathers um, as opposed to having any ideological agreements, I think. Yeah,
1: which Uh, like as, as sort of a like motive for action behavior whatever it just seems like inescapable now yeah like that's the only reason anybody does anything anymore is because they like want to piss off some like undefined group of
2: other people right exactly that undefinable other i was watching uh, i've been watching some hulu show about cults And that is just a theme that comes up in it so often where the like interviewer is like, so who is this other person you guys are preparing against? Uh, (laughs) And they just can't fucking answer. They have no answer and it's, but they don't care. The only other thing I kind of want to talk about is just the, I don't have a single quote because he brings it up a few times, but just that concept of if businesses can't be ran as businesses, which all of these economic turmoil has proven that like the business model we rely on isn't you know tenable for a large scale then why do these people feel so comfortable in demanding that the government is ran as a business and i think that that is a weak point that could actually be exploited like if we were to highlight how if it was able to enter like the common sphere of like how unreliable the business model is how hectic it is how wasteful it is um that it would back that argument out a lot but i i, I don't really know how to how to get that across and i have tried in a lot of reddit
0: arguments uh, okay I, uh, <laughs> yeah what do you mean but what do you mean by uh businesses uh they're not able to be uh, so the main places
2: you? he brings that up i think would be the 08 bank bailouts like if these businesses can't even survive acting his businesses okay. how can you demand that the government and the society that you function in is also operated in the same way um when time after time it has been proven that without regulation and allowing businesses to operate exactly how they feel is right, you know, like post uh, the ending of like Glass-Steagall and stuff like that was like, well, these government regulations. And then what does it do? It leads to a gigantic economy or a collapse of the economy. But I, I don't understand why it's so hard to, to hammer that point across. Like, look at like, this is what you want our company or our country to run out has like exhausting all of its funds every 20 years because of stupid, not thought out choices and shit like that. Um, and i i feel like that is a point that would almost be out of everything one of the easier ways to highlight is like hold on your whole ideology is based off of this falsehood um but how do you do it without getting them defensive in the first place like
0: well yeah well and i think that uh the contradictions in in capitalism have always existed and uh and that's why they they need stuff like bailouts occasionally or whatever. Right, and it
2: just blows my mind that those things have happened multiple times in my lifetime, but they're skirted over so easily um, from and I guess like that's the ignored. Whole point of the book. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and and that would that's the whole thing with like the ahistorical historical stuff and the amnesia is being able to ignore those truths. Just bums me out. I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just like. Seems important to distinguish too, between something like a financial crisis and something like what we are experiencing now, which is just sort of like a generalized depression. Right. Um, Because like the logic for, or their logic for 2008 was that um, it was like a black swan event, right? This kind of unforeseeable, just sort of like eruption of like random circumstances, which is fucking bullshit. Bullshit, right. But that's there, like reams and reams of like economic evidence. But even without that, like we can just look at the recovery in which the financial markets, like, are doing like twice as good as they were before 2008. The GDP is going up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And it seems to be like these there's these metrics now for sort of economic health that are just kind of like totally detached from reality yeah i mean it's a kind of reality right it's like a sort of like abstract financial rate like the gdp is actually going up right like the markets are actually skyrocketing the fact that like unemployment's at almost 40 percent like everybody's been fucked forever is like a different kind of reality that again seems to have no relation to this sort of like dominance one that exists now but it's like amazing how powerful that narrative is, because like even you know I'll talk to my dad, who's like you know not like a fucking communist or anything, but it's like strong liberal whatever. It's be like yeah, you know the economy's been basically like tanking since you know the early nineteen seventies, and he's like, no way, like look at the GDP, look uh, okay, at my four
2: hundred one k, yeah,
1: and that kind of stuff too. That that sort of like individualized. Um, internalize kind of like investments in you know the market but that shit is just like so so powerful in the way these like metrics get kind of deployed to yeah. suggest health to suggest prosperity growth whatever or the uh,
2: classic argument of like how could you be poor and own an iphone sure uh, okay. you know like they had that huge disconnect between like sorry i'm probably not talking about what you're talking about, but that huge disconnect between like the argument I get so often is if we were poor, how could you buy a new iPhone every year? And it's that disconnect between like, yeah, globalism has made a lot of products cheap enough for poor people to own while also not being able to afford rent or afford healthcare. care. Um, and somehow those aren't analogous. Like they could afford rent and healthcare if they didn't make that one time purchase once a year. Uh, and yeah. it's so far from reality. The only reason they can make that purchase is because iPhones are cheap as fuck because of globalism.
0: And, uh, well, and, and uh, also credit. Credit, credit yeah, that too. credit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To
2: which, yep. again, yep. like, post,
1: you know, early 70s, like, the American economy, like, is just credits and debt. Mm. But it's also, like, the iPhone. And in one of the quotes that I've mentioned earlier about this sort of, like, post-Fortist economy, like... Entering the labor force now is kind of like impossible without an iPhone. You know? Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's just like, so. hey, look at you like playing your, fucking, <laughs> I don't know, what's what's a game on the iPhone? Candy Crush? Candy Crush. Yeah. <laughs> um, not like, no, you're fucking like answering furious emails from your boss on there all day.
2: Applying for jobs. Good luck applying for a job without, Yeah. you, you know, yeah, an exactly. iPhone or a laptop. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Oh, I guess maybe it's just sort of like going back to what I mentioned earlier about the book feeling like a little bit dated.
0: Oh, yeah. We didn't really cover that, really. (laughs) Um, Did you what you should cover that before we wrap things up? So to me, it's
1: like it's actually kind of the central thesis, this idea um, which goes back to like the 80s or whatever, that Tina, there is no alternative kind of idea that we we can't imagine anything other than capitalism. Like that actually seems a little bit dated to me now. And I think that has less to do with any sort of like imaginative capacities that people have like developed or lost or whatever, and more to do with just the fact that like we are all witnessing the system like crumbling before our eyes right now. Like everybody fucking knows it. And there are these fantasies of kind of like, you know, Oh, if we elect Biden or whatever, AOC in like 2024, everything can go back to being like good and cool again, as it was in like the Obama years, which of course it wasn't. And it seems like more and more people are kind of like realizing this and recognizing this, that that is just a fucking pure fantasy, you know? And that's like this, this whole thing is going down and it's going to continue to go down. And that's something we have to confront. And the ways we confront that are sort of where all the contests lie now, right? So there's a kind of like nationalist, xenophobic, racist versus these other sort of like array of approaches on the left. But that idea that like the, we can't imagine anything other than capitalism, it seems like <laughs> right now, all we can imagine are things other than capitalism, right? And They could be like disastrous and apocalyptic, or they could be kind of like utopian. But that just seems like something that people are like being forced to confront more and more, and not like academics or like organizers or activists or whatever, but just like regular ass people. And the coronavirus crisis seems like just sort of like the most forceful example of that. And obviously these crises are going to continue to happen. But you know, like 40% fucking unemployment is insane, right? Like as just a material change in people's lives. And right now, like people are getting unemployment, which is sick, but like that's going to run out, you know, all your restaurants are going to close. All your fucking stores are going to be gone. All your old relatives are going to fucking die. Like, (laughs) It just, said, like, it's impossible to kind of confront, to, to not confront this failure now in a way that this book seems to say, like, we weren't then. Which again, like, makes sense in the context.
2: I guess my only response to that is I do get worried that we're just gonna enter, like, hyper-capitalism after this. Sure. Um, like, yeah. just from a shock doctrine sort of perspective. Like, yeah. watching what Betsy DeVos is doing with public schools, um, yeah. watching what they're doing with now how federal money goes to states, watching all these things where like probably I'm reaching too far, but Trump's like pulling a Putin right now where every day I read articles about a new purse whose strings were now tied by McConnell or Trump. So it's getting to the point where like even the, you know, governors that are not Republican and don't support Trump find themselves in this weird fucking position where they have to pay some weird lip service or like, uh, you know, I live in, a part of North Carolina uh, and watching Roy Cooper having to maneuver around the fact that Trump has now dried up all federal things, unless you agree to open up at the rate he wants you to open up at. I do get worried that we're going to come out of this and while we're paying attention to the coronavirus, not see everything they gutted while government officials weren't in office, while people were staying at home. So I do, I do worry about that as well that while we're talking about how it's not working, that the powers that be are coming in and making sure that nothing but yeah. hyper-capitalism will-
1: be Yeah, canceled. yeah, yeah. And I'd, like that seems like clearly the most likely outcome of all of this. Um, But it also, like, I don't think that that then entails a kind of like new sort of stasis in which we just have this like capitalism, but worse. And then that's just right. how things are. Um That's true. And it seems like, like all of this and again the sort of again just like blatant like forget fucking ideology like we're just gonna talk about people as like human capital now right literally all all of the sort of like sheen and gloss over everything is gone and they're like Mm -hmm. yeah we're just gonna fucking like loot this shit before it goes down but again and i feel like you can tell this from sort of just listening to like the ruling class like they know it's going down and all of this is just like the kind of spasm of like a dying body. So whatever comes after that, again, is like anybody's guess, and it does seem likely that it's just gonna be like fucking horrific. But I just, like, the idea that we can go back to any kind of stability as a country, I think it's just kind of like ignoring all kinds of Reality.
2: No, that's really true. I think about that too, because, you know, I'm not a scientist, I just read them, but it seems that the coronavirus may be kind of the tip Uh, of tragedy after tragedy occurring because of what we have done. And the thing about coronavirus that is different than, you know, the narrative that can be controlled by a terrorist attack is that you can't just push it away. Tomorrow there will be more dead people and the day after there will be more dead people. Um, And I guess now we're just playing the game, like, what does that number have to reach before people have to acknowledge that it's a reality? Um,
1: yeah, but, uh, like that's that's what they seem to be setting us up for is, yeah. you know like the whole sort of reopening movement is like, you know, ten thousand people a day are gonna die. That's yeah. that's just life,
2: you know. Um, <laughs> they were gonna die anyway. You knew you were gonna die. What are you shocked yeah. about?
1: <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's not even worth like rehearsing all. The
2: no, things.
1: it's true. <laughs> but have you guys um have you guys read Mike Davis talking about? this situation Uh, oh you should but if i get if i get to do a pitch here yes um yeah so mike davis wrote a book on pandemics like ages ago um and has written stuff more recently about this but it's just like the smartest motherfucker and like one of the things he says is that like you said paul this is just like the tip of the iceberg it's it's an effect a consequence of global warming um and deforestation and, and you know all kinds of sort of like natural symbioses just being like totally disrupted but yeah it's gonna get worse <laughs> yeah not even like obviously climate change as a whole is gonna make things worse but even specifically just like diseases viruses that kind of shit like that's going to keep happening um and like Part of the, there is no alternative capitalist realism framework, um, you know, it seems like very closely connected to the sort of end of history thesis, right? And that's like, yeah, you know, the time, right? Everything is just the same. And it's like, so clear to me that we're like, we're out of that, we're fucking, we're yeah. back in history now, you know? Yeah, like, that's good call. Good crazy call. shit is happening every single day that seemed like totally unimaginable 15 years ago, you know?
2: yeah Yeah. and one thing that i guess people with our ideologies can be careful of and uh, please disagree if i'm wrong is being sure to be welcoming on the other end too because that is one thing that i see alt writers do in their internet communities holy shit are they welcoming if you say one of their taglines like you're instantly in on their right side um whereas like you know mike talks about bleeping out trotsky and shit we don't have that welcoming vibe on our side where it's like oh that's cute you think that but you need to read for ten more years before you can even talk you to me. Any say anything,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's
1: yeah. Did, did you guys read um the vampires castle no. essay? No, sure
0: no, no. Yeah, so, that,
1: that one is basically making that point. That I know, Mike, you and I have talked a lot about this, but the the problem on the left of this kind of like harsh gatekeeping, like all the other words for it. Yeah, and I mean, I think like I think it's well argued. It seems pretty conclusive that there is this kind of problem where like I just hate saying v- virtue signaling because I just it's like right. such a meaningless term but this idea that like one must sort of demonstrates their you know virtue um, yeah. through the kind of like harshest possible critique but as you and I have talked about Mike like I do think sometimes that that gets blown out of proportion because we're all so fucking online you know
2: yeah yeah Yeah. oh god yeah yeah Yeah.
1: but uh, maybe maybe that's not like a adequate dismissal of it because yeah i don't i don't know but it it, i guess i'm agreeing like it does seem like a thing that people could work on generally
0: yeah yeah It, it doesn't hurt you know it doesn't hurt it's not uh uh i don't see any downsides all right so um We've been going at it. I think that we covered um, at least the things I wanted to cover. I, uh, I think the takeaway for, for anyone listening that didn't listen to our episodes on the book is that it is, it is worth reading. There are concepts that uh, are definitely worth exploring and investigating. And I do feel like it is a good um, entry point into um, a lot of topics and, and concepts it was incredible being able to have Chris come and talk with us. We really appreciate it. And, uh, very much. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, you know, we can, we can convince you to do the same in the future.
1: Yeah. Thank you guys for
2: having me.
0: Yeah, no, no, you killed it. (laughs) Yeah. 100% (laughs) go for it.
2: Have a great day.